Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Not Overthinking. Taymor, how are you doing today? Doing well. Yeah, it's been a it's been a nice weekend. We went to a friend's wedding yesterday. Um yeah, I just I feel very peaceful. I feel very peaceful this weekend. Uh, did a bit of work this morning, it was quite fun. Now we're recording the pod and we'll have lunch. Yeah, life's good. Pretty peaceful overall. Life's good. This is the first time we're doing a side-by-side on the sofa shot. So uh, that's normal. Yeah, if you're watching this on, on the YouTube, then then you'll you'll see us side-by-side. Nice. How are you? I'm good. Um, I spent a few days last week in Amsterdam, which, oh. was, which was pretty fun. Hung out with an internet friend of mine and her husband. We roamed around and did a little bit of work, did some sightseeing. It was great vibes all around. Sounds like fun. Mm. What's Amsterdam like? It's 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 kind of like Cambridge, like lots of cobbled streets, but um, and like looks kind of pretty, but there's like rivers and canals everywhere. Well, just like loads of canals. So basically, every two seconds, there's a bridge that overlooks some kind of canal with boats and stuff on it. It's all very nice. That's cute. At least that's like the sort of proper city center. Went to the red light district. Yeah. That's kind of interesting. Yeah, what did you get up to? Um, I saw a peep show. <laughs> What's a peep show? A peep show is where you pay, you, you go into a booth and you pay a certain amount of money, for example, two euros. And then the screen, like the, the darkened, the darkened glass mm. becomes undarkened for two minutes. Yeah. And so during that two minutes, you peep at what's going on inside. So some kind of performance. Some, some kind of performance. Yeah. That sounds like fun. <laughs> uh, it was a bit of a, and an, it was an interesting experience for sure. Yeah. One to, one, one to take off the bucket list. <laughs> Not necessarily one I'd recommend, but. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So that's me. And other than that, I, 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 I've been feeling a lot of FOMO about all the crypto stuff. Mm. And I've been thinking, you know what? I really need to get on this crypto hype. Mm. Um, and so I've been, I've been doing a little bit of podcast listening and blog post reading. Yeah. Um, about things like, you know, Ethereum and Web3 and the metaverse and NFTs and Axie Infinity and all these things, mm. which, you know, I thought I had a pretty reasonable understanding of crypto. I made a video a few months ago, kind of, you know, Bitcoin for beginners. I spent like, you know, uh, tens of minutes, <laughs> uh, tens of hours researching this until I figured, finally figured out what was going on with Bitcoin mm. and turned it into a video explaining the whole hash functions and all that jazz. Right, right. And I thought that was a pretty solid video. And then I thought I understood everything about crypto. So I was like, cool. <laughs> and now all this terminology is coming up, like freaking DeFi. And we apparently it's been going on for the last like 12 to 18 months. And I just have, have yeah, been yeah. so, I've been seeing uh, seeing grumblings, rumblings of it on Twitter, mm. but haven't really taken it seriously. Yeah. And now that enough of my kind of peers in the creator world, uh, i.e. people who do podcasts and stuff, are jumping on the crypto hype yeah. and talking about how we need to be jumping on the crypto hype. I thought, okay, let me actually do some do some digging into this. Nice. So I'm still maybe I've just sort of scratched five percent of the surface of the new crypto stuff, but I thought we'd mm. chat a little bit about our current understanding of crypto 
uh, two random dudes who have done a little bit of reading about it. Right. And maybe, I don't know, maybe it'll be interesting for the audience to listen to. I, I imagine most people who listen to the podcast are not that clued up on, on crypto. I yeah, I, I, I think I think so. Yeah, I'm a bit wary that this is like the most cliche thing to do. <laughs> like <laughs> two tech bros with a podcast talking about crypto where they don't actually really know much about it. That's fine. But as, as long as we caveat it as we yeah. don't really know very much about it. If anyone listening to the podcast is is actually an expert on crypto and, and knows about this stuff, we would love to hear from you genuinely. Um, please do email us and uh, correct anything that we, that we said that may be wrong or point us to resources. I'm interested in doing a whole deep dive on this and I'm in working on a big blog post, which I'll turn into a video. So maybe why don't you start with like, what's your current, what's your history with uh, with crypto and and what's your current level of, of knowledge? Yeah, so history with crypto. Um, first heard about Bitcoin way back like 2013, probably probably even before then uh, and didn't think anything of it. I think you and I at one point uh, thought, oh, we should put like 100 quid into Bitcoin or something. Mm. And at the time, it was just like too too much of a faff to do. Yeah. And we didn't really take that seriously, which was a very expensive mistake mm. in hindsight. Um, really only started actually buying crypto in 2017, just before the bull run, when for those for the unfamiliar in 2017, crypto was worth, a, started off as about like 3K, $3,000. Yeah, for Bitcoin. And by the end of that year, Bitcoin was worth about $19,000 at one point before suddenly crashing down in sort of like late December 2017, early January 2018, completely plummeting down to sort of 10,000, 7,000, that level of that level of price. And so I ended up losing around $50,000 in Bitcoin between 2017 through to 2019. Right. Because I bought in as the hype was going up and up and up. Yeah. It crashed. And why did you sell? I, I really, it, it baffled me when you sold. Like, why did you sell? Oh, because I needed to put down a deposit for the flat. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I had to take money out of crypto to buy real estate. <laughs> the, ulti- the ultimate mod move. Make it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I was like, cool, crypto is a bit dead. I didn't really, and, and then there was four years of crypto winter, <laughs> as they say, from like 2017 through to about 2020, uh, three, four years of crypto winter where the price was fairly static, fairly low. Bitcoin was hovering around, I think somewhere between like $5,000 and $10,000 mm. and wasn't really doing anything. Then all of a sudden, a few months ago, was it a few months ago or was it like last year? It feels like it was a few months ago. I, th- I feel like it went up last year, then it went down. And it's gone. Yeah, but now b- b- the price of Bitcoin is around about $60,000. Mm. Um, so had I held on to the money from 2017, it would have been worth about three or four times yeah. what it was. But I had to realize the losses to to buy real estate. But actually, <laughs> I, I met an account on Cointracker.io recently. Yeah. Where, and Cointracker is cool because it's free software that aggregates all of the crypto you've ever bought from things like Coinbase mm. um, and Binance and all these, these other kind of, you can connect all your wallets to it. And it shows you your uh, P&L when it comes to crypto over the long term. And so my graph shows that like I put a lot, bunch of money into crypto, subsequently lost a lot of it, and it was about $50,000 in the red. But now that because I've been slowly buying some some over the last like last few months, and because I actually held on to about uh, twenty seven Ethereum's, oh really? Nice. <laughs> uh, because I only sold the Bitcoin. Uh, I was like, okay. oh, might as well hold on to Ethereum. Yeah, that's Ethereum's gone up by like freaking five hundred percent since then. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so I am now in the green again. Nice. Um, but that's just one very small part of the crypto thing, which is purely treating cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum as a store of value or as a currency that I'm hoping to buy into early on so that the price goes up. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm the, but that's just like scratching the surface of what's going on in the crypto world these days, mm. is my understanding. Okay, nice. 
Um, yeah, that's a good history. I think mine was kind of similar. Uh, I think like 2012, 2013, started hearing about it on the, on like the internet. And I think, in, yeah, in like 2012, 2013, when I think a Bitcoin was, I don't know, if a couple, maybe like a few dozens of dollars or something for a Bitcoin, maybe like $50 or something, maybe less. Um, I think I tried to buy some, but it was basically impossible to buy it in the UK. There was no online exchange where you could like, you know, do a bank transfer or enter your like credit card info. You couldn't do that. So they say the only way to buy it was to meet someone in real life, basically, who <laughs> claims to have some crypto. And then like you do this dodgy transaction um, and exchange, exchange money in real life, basically. Uh, so I never ended up doing that. So that was right at the end of secondary school. Um, <clears throat> and then I just kind of forgot, it for, for, forgot about it for a bit. And I think similar to you in sort of 2017, I started sort of slowly buying in, um, you know, probably from around 3K all the way up to like 19K. I basically used to put like a chunk of my paycheck into it every month. And then I remember in like 27, 2018, that was when CryptoKitties happened. And that was that, that seemed quite cool. And so I had a, I have a couple of CryptoKitties uh, kicking about. Um, I don't know. I don't know what's going on with CryptoKitties anymore. But I think the company that makes CryptoKitties is, is, is now... Um, um, so they make other games and stuff, right? Yeah. So yeah, that was a crypto kitties. Um, I, I never sold anything. I just kind of held on to it. I didn't really need the money. Um, yeah, I just kind of held on. It's doing well these days. Um, yeah, I think by default, I just kind of put all my money into crypto. And then when I need liquidity for other things then I just take out, take out a little bit. Oh, you do. So you're actually using crypto as like an, a genuine store of store of value. What do people mean by store of value? I've, I've, as, I've never said as, 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 as in basically as a bank account. Huh? You're using crypto as a bank account, basically. You're putting money into crypto and then just leaving it there. And then when you need to buy stuff, you're converting crypto into fiat and then buying a takeaway. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What's yes. your what's your percentage gain since since you started? I don't know. I was I don't really care either. <laughs> I don't understand why people care about their percentage gain. At first, I think okay. Here's the thing. I think percentage gain percentage gain doesn't actually matter. I think uh, I think percentage gain is a vanity metric. Actually, absolute gain is the thing that matters. No, um, sure, but like I I ask about percentage gain in case you don't want to reveal your the your your crypto holdings. I don't I don't know my percentage gain. I genuinely don't know. I just I've, have you not gone on Coin Tracker and just connected your Coinbase account? There's issues uh, there's issues with Coin Tracker that I won't bother going into because it's really tedious um for that and for, for which reason my coin tracker numbers are not trustworthy um but yeah i'm not too fussed to be honest. i don't i don't check the prices you know every time basically every time i need to take some money out that's when i log into uh coinbase coinbase pro obviously and then i'm like oh that's how much my portfolio is i'll take a few k out and then i move on and then the next time I go, I, I you know, despite having taken a few K out, my portfolio is still more than it used to be. It's like, well, happy days. <laughs> Just money out of nowhere. <laughs> so yeah, how, so how, how much of your paycheck are you putting into crypto? I mean, basically all of it. Oh, so you you get your salary from your company at the end of the month and you just buy 50% Bitcoin, 50% Ethereum? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So the money comes into your account and you just literally go on Coinbase Pro, you transfer it to mm. Coinbase and then yeah. you just, you're like, all right, cool. Not going to bother timing the market, not going to bother like... Yeah, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Right. Here's the thing. Yeah, I don't I don't think most people should be doing this. I think the, the thing is, you know, I don't have any financial responsibilities and... Okay, here's the thing. There's, there's two things that I think let me do this. The okay. first is that I don't have any financial responsibilities. The second is that I have a credit card. And so I can, even with zero pounds in my bank account, I can spend money on my credit card and I won't have to pay it until a month later. And so you have this like, you have you have this sort of one month liquidity buffer where I don't really need to think about it. I can just put the whole paycheck in there. Like, and by the time I need to pay it, 
maybe my next paycheck will have come in or maybe I'll just take some money out or something. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, so that's basically what I do. But yeah, I'm just not too fussed about like, what are my returns, yada, yada. Like from my point of view, I, I have pretty strong conviction that there's no better place for me to be parking my money. That's why, all that matters. Why, why do you have such strong conviction of this? Like most people, when they hear about crypto, their concern is what if I, lo- what if I lose all my money? And you're okay, applying yeah. 100% of your, of your income into it. The thing, yeah, look, again, I think I'm in quite a fortunate position where I, okay. even if I lose all of it, it, it you know, I don't need it, you know? Okay. So I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I know that I'm taking this sort of risk. Okay, here's the thing. The thing is, it's not going to go to zero. Bitcoin and Ethereum are not going to go to zero. Like I think, I, you know, I don't know why anyone would think they, they would go to zero. So it's, it's not a matter of like, what if I lose all my money? Because you're not going to lose all your money. Um, but, they, you know, I'm not encouraging anyone else to do this, by the way. I'm just saying from my, from my point of view, if I don't need to have money sitting around my bank account, I don't have any financial responsibilities, it's a nice asymmetric bet where, yes, I could lose all, you know, I could lose all my money. I don't think that's actually possible. Um, but, the, yeah, the potential gain is just quite a lot. Why will Bitcoin and Ethereum not go to zero? Sorry? Why won't Bitcoin and Ethereum go to zero in your estimation? Bearing in mind, this is not financial advice, et cetera, et cetera. This is all purely speculation from two tech bros who vaguely do a bit of reading on blog posts and on, on Twitter.com. Well, I think if Bitcoin or, or Ethereum were to go to zero, it would it would basically mean that no one is doing anything with them anymore at all. And, you know, there's... there's a pretty big critical mass of people doing stuff with it. There's, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you read enough Twitter.com, you'll see that there's a ton of activity in the space, people building cool stuff on, you know, on top of Ethereum and mm. other blockchains and stuff like that. Like, the, if you think it's going to go to zero, you're basically saying that this whole crypto thing is going to literally completely fizzle out. And I have pretty strong conviction that, you know, in the future, you know, 10 years from now and longer, um, there is going to be something happening in crypto still. I think I think crypto is here to stay. And for that reason, Bitcoin and Ethereum are not going to go to zero. Okay. Um, what gives you the strong conviction? It's mostly just, it's mostly, um, just uh, having my finger on the pulse of, of Twitter, really. It's, you know, there's um, yeah, just lo- lots of smart people doing stuff in the space. Um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's unclear, like, what, you know, what, you know, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't try and predict, you know, 10 years from now, what are going to be the killer use cases of crypto? I don't know. But I think that the the concept is sufficiently novel and interesting. And the people involved in doing stuff there uh, are, you know, pretty, pretty legit. And so, I th- you know, I think some, something is going to happen and something will stick around. So I think one, one, one area in which I certainly struggled and I'm now kind of just scratching the surface of, of, of the possibilities here is moving away from thinking of crypto as just Bitcoin towards thinking of it as more than just Bitcoin and all the other things that are possible with it. Mm. So you saying, I imagine for someone listening to this, if I, if I, if I were to make a few assumptions, assumptions about our listeners, most of them have probably heard of Bitcoin and Ethereum. They might've heard of other coins like, I don't know, Litecoin or something from back in the day. They maybe understand roughly how Bitcoin works. Uh, potentially seen a couple of YouTube videos about it, potentially kind of maybe even looked at the white paper, but probably didn't bother bother like reading it properly or trying to understand it because it's quite like mathsy. Um, but if if our listeners are any, if if my if my kind of saga through the crypto thing is anything to go by, there was a like once I understood Bitcoin, I was like, all right, cool, that's fine, I get it. But then you saying stuff like people are building things on top of crypto oh, and there's all this okay, whole okay. space. It's like how the hell are people building things on top of Bitcoin? Yeah, so. <laughs> Can you explain like I'm five? What what 
what is crypto beyond just Bitcoin? Okay, I'll just I'll caveat this by saying, look, there there are better explanations of this out there. Um, there's a a podcast that uh, on the Tim Ferriss podcast a few months ago, he had uh, Vitalik Buterin and Naval. Um, who came on to talk about Ethereum and exactly what it means and stuff like that. So I'd recommend, actually, yeah, let, let me just list out a few resources. So Tim Ferriss podcast from a few months ago with Vitalik and Naval, we'll link to it below. Yep. Acquired FM podcast about Ethereum. I think it's like a two or three part thing. Acquired FM is sick. Definitely listen to those two. And then Tim, Tim Ferriss had a recent one, I think maybe his most recent episode. Yeah, with um, Chris Dixon with and Chris Naval, and Naval uh, also talking about crypto. So if you want a real explanation about this stuff, uh, well, I guess, yeah, I guess if at the end of this episode you think, okay, you know, these uh, these tech bros have, uh, you know, have sparked my interest, then I'd recommend going and listening to these actual mm. podcasts about this, this stuff. Okay. Yeah, the other one I'd add to the list is uh, Tim Ferriss's episode with Anthony, someone, Pom Pompliano. Pompliano, yeah. Apparently, people have pointed that as like to that okay. as like the ultimate resource for understanding kind of the bare basics. Okay, right, right, right. So we'll link to all the stuff in the video description, uh, in the show notes, wherever wherever you're listening to this. Can you be in charge of? <laughs> doing that please okay wonderful uh right so what was the question like okay the question so when was i say, like, when I say is... things like oh you know people are like building on top of crypto what the hell yeah is like what, what the hell is crypto beyond this kind of internet gold that's that, that we know as bitcoin okay cool so from my understanding you can't do too much with bitcoin apart from send money to people send bitcoin to people and receive bitcoin from other people do you think it's worth doing a quick whistle stop tour of what what bitcoin is and why it's legit as like a sort of starting starting point Okay, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll just about. So look, just you know, just to kind of be explicit about my knowledge in this area, you know, I like I said, tried to buy some Bitcoin 2012, 2013, didn't manage it. In twenty seventeen, I actually did some digging. You know, read the white paper about ten times before I actually understood it. Watched the three blue one brown video about it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, so <clears throat> I had a, I, I think I had a sort of proper technical understanding of how Bitcoin works in twenty seventeen. I think now. The technical details are probably missing, but I I still have the high level concept. Okay. Uh, would the the other thing we could potentially do is I have a seventeen minute video explaining Bitcoin. We could just embed the audio for that video here. No, no, <laughs> we, no. Let's not do that. I mean, people can pause this and go watch it if they want. That would be that would be quite tedious, I think, for people who don't care to that to that degree. Um, so yeah, maybe at a high level. Uh, from my understanding, look, I I don't know too much about this you stuff. You don't need to. You, you can stop caveating. Let's just, we've we've done all the caveating we need to. <laughs> all right, fine. From my understanding, real life money, fiat fiat money, works because we trust the government to maintain the whole system, right? We, uh, you know, the government, uh, you know, gives out Great British pounds to us, and then we spend them, and we just we kind of trust the government that you know they're gonna you know, keep giving out great British pounds as necessary. We kind of, you know, we trust that shopkeepers will keep accepting it and stuff like that. Yeah. And like back in the day, I think pre-1970, the US dollar was tied to the gold standard, which meant that, you know, if you were to go to the Federal Reserve or whatever and give them $100, they would, that, that, that like, like basically every dollar was correlated with an amount of physical gold, which yeah. was stored in some vault in Fort Knox or something like that. Right. And then President Nixon decided to re to get the U.S. off of the gold standard, which made it a fiat currency, i.e., purely backed by the power of the government. And so the only like how sometimes people say Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, like real money has no intrinsic value. It's just bits of paper. But the only reason it has value is because we believe collectively as a society that it does have value. Yep. Um, so you know, yeah, the sort of normal currency is kind of built on uh, is is centralized in the sense that. It's kind of controlled by a government, right? 
Um, and so, you know, they could like, they could do lots of things. They could just like print a bunch more money, which means that the money that you have is actually worth less than you thought, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so we're kind of trusting the government not to screw, not to screw things up. Obviously, you know, and crucially, it's not, it's not just the government we're trusting. It's also, we're trusting central institutions like banks and credit card providers, providers like Visa, MasterCard, American Express, and so on. Because generally when money exchanges hands these days, it's not a case of, I'm giving you $10 or you're giving me 10 pounds. It's usually a case of, let's say, you know, in the simple thing of doing a bank transfer, like money is not actually changing hands there particularly. Generally, it's numbers on a screen being updated in one person's account and 10 pounds being added to your number on a screen and 10 pounds being removed from my number from a screen and the central authority, i.e. the bank and the financial system regulated by government bodies like the FCA and so on. We we trust these financial institutions to do the things properly, mm -hmm. such that when I bank transfer you ten pounds, I am actually I actually have ten pounds to give you. I can't like try and transfer the same ten pounds to multiple people. Like there's all this stuff happening behind the scenes that we take for granted because we implicitly trust these centralized institutions, like the government and the banks and the kind of financial regulation system in in most countries. Yeah, exactly. And so if you want to move money, um, if if you want to move normal money you have to go through these various like intermediaries, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to move money from one country to another, maybe change the currency and stuff, then there's even more like random crap that you have to deal with and random third parties that you have to trust. And it's, it's a bit of a faff, okay? Uh, and so the, uh, you know, one, one of the ideas behind Bitcoin is that it is a, a trustless system. You know, you don't have to trust anyone. Um, essentially, there's no, there's no kind of centralized authority that's giving out the Bitcoins. You know, when you transfer Bitcoin from one person to another, there's, uh, there's, no, there's no kind of centralized authority that is going into the database, changing some numbers around, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so Bitcoin is, uh, is peer to peer in that sense, where if I want to send you 10 pounds, I send you 10 pounds, right? There's no, there's no middle, there's no middlemen. Yeah. Um, the way to think about, about Bitcoin is that it's basically a very, very long spreadsheet. And it's a very long spreadsheet that since the, since the, the start of Bitcoin in 2009 is recording every single transaction that has ever taken place regarding Bitcoin. So if you and I were the second transaction on the spreadsheet, it would say, Ali sends Tamor to Bitcoin. And then you receive two Bitcoin. Then you could be like, you've sent James one Bitcoin because you've got two Bitcoins one, and, and, and James then has one. If you tried to do Tamor sends John eight Bitcoins and you don't have eight Bitcoins, then the spreadsheet would know that and it would reject the ability, your, your attempt to spend money that you don't already have. This is kind of like the way, the, the, the way it made sense for me was, let's say you're going on a group holiday with friends and you're, you're trying to do some kind of system to split the bills and like who's, who's paid for what. Let's say I paid for the Airbnb, you're paying for dinner one night, someone's paying for the drink, someone's paying for the, I don't know, waterfall excursion. We don't really want to bother exchanging actual money because that's a bit of a faff. We want to we want to create a ledger to keep track of who owes whom what money and who spent what money. And that's what companies like Splitwise and stuff do. They basically maintain this ledger. Now, if you wanted to do this in a fairly low tech kind of way, you would just get a piece of paper and you would create your own mini spreadsheet that writes, oh, Ali paid 300 pounds for the Airbnb. Therefore, Tame owes Ali 75 pounds. Jake owes Ali 75 pounds and so on. And with few enough people, this is this is a system that works because it's based on trusting trusting the ledger, right? trusting the spreadsheet, and trusting the person who is managing the, the spreadsheet. You are trusting implicitly because you're my mate or slash my brother that I'm not gonna randomly fudge the numbers because, just because I feel like it. But the idea is that, uh, the, the idea of Bitcoin is what if you could have this ledger-based system 
and apply it to the whole world. At this point, you can no longer trust that, I don't know, the Google Sheet that you've got, you've got everything in is being managed appropriately. You're having to rely on Google who is hosting the Google Sheet or Microsoft who's hosting the Excel spreadsheet or the person who's you know, got a physical copy of the ledger in paper format. You're having to trust them that they're not fudging the numbers. And so the whole point of the whole point of Bitcoin is it basically gives millions of computers all around the world the uh, sort of the power to view this spreadsheet so that millions of computers all around the world run by individuals, run by companies can all verify the authenticity of the ledger. And there is no individual company that has the keys to the kingdom that holds a copy of this mass Google sheet. I say Google sheet meaning a spreadsheet, but basically uh, it's and 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 the reason it's called cryptocurrency is that the way this works is probably beyond the scope of this episode, but it's all done through some very clever cryptography and maths that combines to give all of the nodes on the network, i.e., these millions of laptops all around the world, the power to verify transactions and to make sure that no one is misbehaving. And this is why it creates a trustless decentralized system. Decentralized because well, there's not a central body controlling it. It's millions of computers all around the world. And trustless is because you don't have to trust an individual party. You don't have to trust the government or Barclays Bank or Google or Facebook to do things properly. The system itself, the code within the Bitcoin protocol verifies all of the transactions. And it's all open source. Anyone can see exactly how it works. Anyone can see any transaction from 2009 up until now and forevermore. Um, so you don't need to trust individual institutions. Nice. Um yeah, to be honest, I'm not sure how useful the technical explanation is. Yeah, I think the te- I think the technical details don't matter too much. I I, I would say actually, like the <clears throat> okay, I, th- I think thinking about it as like a shared spreadsheet is good. The reason why it's kind of trustless is that in, in order to add something to this shared shared spreadsheet, a bunch of you know a bunch of other people who have access to the shared spreadsheet have to verify that transaction. So they have they have to do some work to make sure that okay, your your wallet has enough money. The other person's wallet exists, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so you're, you're, any, anytime you try and add something to the ledger, to, to, the, to the spreadsheet, other people are doing some work to verify that this is, uh, this is okay. You know, they're, they're doing some, some basic calculations to verify that this, this transaction uh, actually makes sense. Um, and in, in that way, like you're, you're kind of trusting, you know, and, and once they've done that work, it then gets added to the ledger, added to the spreadsheet, and you then tell everyone else who has the spreadsheet, hey, this is a new thing on the spreadsheet, you know, make sure you have the latest version of the spreadsheet, you know, you, you send, you send uh, you know, bitcoin.xlsx uh, v to 200 million, you know, whatever, you send, you send that file around to everyone else. Um, and so, like, <clears throat> you, what you're doing is you're, you're trusting that at least 50% of the participants of, of the shared spreadsheets are not trying to screw you over, you know? Like, it's it's kind of like a consensus thing where if if a majority of people agree that this transaction is okay, then that transaction is okay. Um, and, you know, when, when Bitcoin was really small, maybe when there's like 10 people, maybe you could get a, you know, a guy who's a bit of a snake and he like, you know, convinces you know, four other people or something that like, hey, let's, let's sneak in this dodgy transaction so that we get loads of money. You know, when, when it's like 10 people doing the shared spreadsheet, maybe you can do that. But now that you have kind of millions of, uh, millions of people on the shared spreadsheet, if you, want to, if you want to do something dodgy, you will basically have to convince, from my understanding, like 50% of, of the participants to do this thing with you. And that gets harder and harder the more people there are because, um, you know, if, uh, if, if, the, if the spreadsheet is compromised, right? If, like if, if it's found out that, oh, actually, you know, 
there's so many fake transactions, you know, there's so many people who've managed to just like magic some money out of thin air, then like everyone will lose trust in the system. And even if you manage to ma magic yourself some extra Bitcoins, once everyone loses trust in the system, it's not going to be worth anything. And so the bigger, the bigger the network gets, the more people that are buying into this, the more secure it becomes because uh, it becomes harder and harder to, to kind of, uh, yeah, mess things up. Cool. So Bitcoin is basically like um, internet money. Mm. Um, the way, so uh, a lot of things have gone offline and onto the internet. <laughs> you know, the way we communicate is rather than sending letters, we send emails, which is basically sending a letter, but it's like the internet version of sending a letter. And the internet version of sending a letter unlocks a bunch of interesting possibilities that you didn't have when actually sending a letter. It's cheap, it's easy, you can do it anywhere in the world. Similarly, um, the World Wide Web kind of started off as taking the concept of a brochure and sticking it on the internet in the form of a web page. So now anyone can put their kind of magazine on the internet as a web page. You could write something on a word processing document, uh, on a word processor on your computer, you can stick it on the internet as a web page, and now you can share that web page with anyone in the world. And effectively what you're doing is creating an internet version of this real life thing, i.e. a document. Uh, and that's where the kind of files and folders and this other terminology on the, on computers come from because it mimics real life terminology like files and folders so people can understand it a little bit better. But because it's now on the internet, you have the power of the internet, you unlock the ability to be able to share it with anyone wherever they are completely for free in whichever country they're in, provided they have an internet, they have internet access. One thing that has not really gone online is money. Um, and even though the kind of the World Wide Web first started in like 1990, it's still an absolute ball ache and faff to uh, send money to people, to receive money, to manage bank accounts. You know, our cousin recently moved to the UK to do a master's and had to verify a bunch of things to even try and open a bank account to send and receive money, especially across borders is, is an absolute faff. So like Bitcoin effectively is solving, to my understanding, the issue of essentially trying to create a form of currency which works on the internet and is like internet first so that you can you know if you were to try and design the ideal internet digital currency it would probably look something like bitcoin where it's very cheap if not free to send it to anyone you don't need to trust a central authority you don't need to bother really verifying your identity a few caveats with that because then it opens you to fraud and, and, and that kind of stuff but it's basically kind of magical internet money which is money going online, uh, which unlocks a bunch of interesting use cases. Okay, okay. nice. Yeah, so I, th I think that's pretty accurate about Bitcoin. I think I think it's reasonable to think about it as internet money. But so there's still a question of, okay, like, great, you now have internet money. What does it mean? Like, what are all these people doing? Like, the, the money's there, bro. Like, yeah. <laughs> what, do you, what do you have left to do? Cool. So that's, so what the, 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 the analogy that I heard recently is that um, Bitcoin is like internet money. So Bitcoin is like gold, but Ethereum, which is this other cryptocurrency uh, is not real. Like the point of Ethereum is not to be money. The point of Ethereum is to be a software platform. Mm. So what is, what's, what's your understanding of that? Yeah. So my, my understanding of Ethereum, um, and I didn't make up this term, but it's, it's, it's kind of like this world computer where you can kind of think of Ethereum as like this massive computer um, that's shared by everyone in the world who is, uh, who's participating. Um, and so, you know, for example, when you, when you do something on your own computer, right, your computer has a little, uh, processor inside it that like, you know, crunches some numbers to do whatever you need. Okay. Um, and so your, your, your processor on your computer is, is what, le what lets you do stuff. Um, the, the processor in, uh, in Ethereum 
is kind of all the millions of people that are participating. If you have an Excel spreadsheet, right, on your, on your computer, and you enter in some numbers and you do, you do some calculation, your computer itself is, is doing that calculation and returning the numbers. On Ethereum, you can create apps, right? You can, you can create apps on this shared computer. And if, uh, let's say you created a, an Excel app on the shared computer, when someone types in like, you know, one plus one, <laughs> equals one plus one yes uh, <laughs> sorry <laughs> when someone types in equals one plus one on the on the the on the ethereum excel then it's not just what it's not one computer that's doing that calculation but a bunch of computers around this uh, in the network are kind of doing that calculation and then the answer will kind of get returned and so it, it kind of lets you sort of pool computer resources so that you can, sort of every everyone is kind of uh, doing the, the processing of any for any app that's on the Ethereum network. Does and that so that makes sense. And so the Ethereum network is sort of millions of computers that people like me and you have downloaded the Ethereum software onto, and we've decided, okay, well, this computer is now going to join the Ethereum network. Yeah. And other people, and that's sort of like the hardware layer, and other people can write their own software using this special coding language that's built for the Ethereum network which allows people to create their own apps on top of it. And those apps take advantage of the, basically this massive distributed mm. computer yeah. that we use processing power from. Yeah, essentially. And so, so you know, for example, back in 2017, 2018, Lucas and I actually built an app on Ethereum. Uh, Ethereum apps are sometimes called dApps, as for a decentralized app. We built a, we built a dApp. Uh, that was basically kind of like an auction where you can send some money to our auction app. And if you send it more than the last highest bidder, then you become the new highest bidder. It returns the money to the previous highest bidder. And your prize for being the highest bidder is that you get to decide where a particular domain name gets redirected. So it's uh, algo.app. And so uh, you could basically send some money to our auction house and say, hey, I want to redirect algo.app to, you know, twitter.com slash tamerabdoll, you know, whatever it might be. And then if you're the highest bidder, then it actually yeah, kind of does that. Um, and so you can write these apps on the Ethereum blockchain and then other pe anyone in the world can interact with them. The interesting thing is that any anyone anyone in the world can see can see the code for your app. Okay. Like when when I when you do a tweet, you can't see you can't see what's going on behind the scenes at Twitter HQ. You know, you're just trusting that okay, when I do a tweet, it'll get posted, it won't get tampered with, yada yada. You're you're trusting lots of different things for every product you use, Twitter, Facebook, you know, your mobile banking app. You're trusting that these things will work in the way that they claim to work. Um, with uh, with apps on Ethereum, when you like when you publish an app on Ethereum, everyone else on Ethereum can read the code for your app. And so, you know, if I create this auction house app and I claim that, hey, we will refund you if you get outbid, you know, that is something you can verify for yourself by reading the code for the app and seeing that, okay, by the way this code is written, I will actually get my money back in the way that these people are claiming I will. Um, and that's that's kind of a really crucial thing because again, that kind of means that you don't have to trust any centralized authorities. Uh, you, you kind of have to, I mean, there can still be bad actors, right? Like you can still try and uh, you know, people might not spot a mistake in your code or whatever, um, but the code is there for anyone to read. And so you can actually kind of verify that these apps are going to do what they say. And is that what a smart contract is? Yeah, yeah. So an, an app on Ethereum is called a, a smart contract. Um, 
where you can essentially write some code for this contract and then people can interact with the app by sending messages plus money, money being uh, ETH to it. So is the idea behind the Ethereum stuff is that if you want if you want to interact with the network as a user, you have to send some money to a thing. I think so. I, maybe you can send a message without any money. I'm actually I'm not sure. I'm not sure, but yeah, basically, yeah. Okay. And the reason you send money in the form of uh, they call it gas, uh, which is basically a, a fraction of a decimal of of some Ethereum, some Ether rather. Uh, the reason you send the money is because then the computers on the network that process your process your transaction that process the that, that that do the processing of the code they are incentivized to lend their computing resources to it and so they get a little bit of a kickback in the form of the transaction fee that you pay yeah, for it yeah. and apparently there's a problem with ethereum these days where because so many people are building on top of it and it's become so popular in recent memory uh the gas fees are ridiculously high so like earlier today i was trying to <laughs> i was trying to buy some axie infinity tokens and I was trying to transfer like $300 of Ethereum into my account, but it was costing me $120 of gas to trans transfer $300 of Ethereum. And when the gas fees are that high relative to the amount, the amount I was trying to transfer, it just became not worth it. And so this is a problem right now with Ethereum in particular. And the people, you know, you know the nonprofit foundation that runs Ethereum are trying their best with their team of programmers to solve this problem, is, is my understanding. Yeah, I think that's probably my understanding as well. Again, I think the, I think the technical details are, are kind of confusing, but essentially Ethereum is like this big computer that everyone in the world is sharing and you can write apps for this big computer. Interestingly, all these apps can interact with one another. And so you can have an app that does a certain thing. Someone else can have an app that does another certain thing. And then you can have an app that like connects the two things together. And so you can kind of, uh, it has a sort of composability aspect where um, everything is like a Lego building block that, that plugs into each other. Whereas, for example, yeah, if I'm on a Mac and my friend is on a PC or something, our desktop app, desktop apps can't really like interact. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really get the the the, the technical details of this composability thing. Um, that's that's a thing that I was going to do a deep dive on at some point. Do you do you understand how it works? I mean, I think so. I think I think there's just like one one core concept, which is this smart contract, and everything is a smart contract. And, and and the thing that you do is you send messages to us to smart contracts okay and then a smart contract can take a message and programmatically turn mm. it into another message which is sent to another contract and stuff like that and so all these contracts can speak to each other if they wanted okay so it's like let, let's say i create a smart contract that takes a number multiplies it by five and gives it back and then you could make a smart contract you could say hey i want to take a number multiply it by 10 and then I want to send it to Ali's smart contract, which multiplies by five. Yeah. And then he'll, his smart contract will send it back. And then I'll do something with that number in my smart contract and, and like maybe send it back to the user. Yeah, sure. Or yeah. something like that. Yeah. But obviously that's a very, very simple example in more interesting use cases. Well, I can't think of anything off the, off, off the top of my head, but it's like... Yeah, so I think there's a lot of um, DeFi, which means decentralized finance. There's a lot of interesting financial applications being built on Ethereum where yeah kind of uh I, I don't know too much about them but yeah in the same way that there's kind of weird financial instruments in real life that have you know certain risks and reward structures and stuff like that you know you can all you can kind of uh in, instead of having some investment bank where some analyst is sitting there and telling you that hey i can i can give you this instrument for this price right now whatever it's all just kind of completely programmed 
Um, and so you, you can you can make kind of weird financial in instruments that do that do weird things if you wanted. And there's a lot of that going on. What's the deal with NFTs? <laughs> I don't really understand, to be honest. Okay. Um, I think I think I do. Okay. So why don't you ask me some questions and I'll see if I really understand. Okay. So I know that NFT stands for non fungible token. Hmm. It basically means that like it's it's not it's not a currency in the sense that you can't like divide it. You know, if I if I have one Bitcoin, I could I could split it in half. I can send half of it to someone else, etc. Cetera, et cetera. And NFT is like a unique thing that can't be you know, that's not divisible by anything, right? Yeah. So the 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 way the the way I understood it was that basically what uh, understanding what the word fungible means and fungible is this thing you've just described of being able to split apart such that the the sum of the splitting equals the whole like you said let's say you had ten dollars you could split that up into one dollar bills and those one dollar bills added up would equal the ten dollars yeah but also like your ten dollars is exactly the same as someone else's ten dollars yeah. like the fact that it's your ten dollar bill does not make it any more or less valuable than the fact that it's someone else's ten dollar bill so that's what a fungible token is, token just being item. So $10 and the dollar is a fungible token. Uh, you, you know, Bitcoin is a fungible token because it can be split apart and one Bitcoin is worth exactly the same as any other Bitcoin. Uh, what is a non-fungible token? A non-fungible token is something that does not have these properties, i.e. that cannot be split up and also that kind of the original copy of the thing may be worth more than subsequent copies of the thing. For example, the Mona Lisa is a non-fungible token. The Mona Lisa is an NFT because there is only one of it. Um, it's worth quite a lot of money. You can't split up the Mona Lisa into parts and sell those parts and then put them together and it's suddenly the Mona Lisa again. And also the original Mona Lisa, which is in the Louvre Museum in Paris, is worth a hell of a lot more than my photocopy replica of the Mona Lisa, which I've got up in my bedroom wall. So the Mona Lisa, uh, these works of art, these are all non-fungible tokens. Um, you know, a shiny Charizard first edition from Pokemon <laughs> back in the day is a non-fungible token because you can't split it up. And, you know, each individual copy of that Charizard is worth something. And depending on the condition, depending on who the original collector was, depending on how original it is, depending on whether it's a first edition, is probably worth more than if you try to photocopy that Charizard and try to sell that piece of paper to someone. So that's basically what an NFT is. It is a thing, an, an item that has... That, that is sufficiently scarce and is unable to be kind of fungified, cannot be split. Yeah, that makes sense. But like, what's the point? The, the point of NFTs is that it's, it's, a, it's a recognition that things can have value even if they don't have value. Um, I.e., it's, it's, it's a recognition of ownership, that owning something... Uh, that, okay, let's think about it in the context of the Mona Lisa. Why, why does the Mona Lisa have value? I know, because a bunch of people say it does. Exactly. The Mona Lisa has value because a bunch of people say it does. And you, as the owner of the Mona Lisa, or the Louvre Museum, as the owner of the Mona Lisa, knows that they have the original copy of the Mona Lisa because they can verify its authenticity, because a bunch of art historians and stuff from all around the world have looked at it and said, oh my God, this is the actual legit Mona Lisa. Um, and because a bunch of art collectors all around the world would like value the Mona Lisa at you know tens of millions of dollars, it therefore has value. Even though at the end of the day, it's just a piece of paper with a bunch of a bunch of paint paint splodges on it. Mm. So the Mona Lisa has no intrinsic value, but it does have value because society believes it has value. Now the question then becomes that: Is it only physical items that can be like this? What if you? What if the Mona Lisa, instead of being a physical painting, what if it was a um, 
just a JPEG, an image on the internet that someone created on Photoshop that, you know, Leonardo da Vinci created on Photoshop and put it online. Does that copy of the Mona Lisa still have any intrinsic value? What do you reckon? Yeah, sure. If people think it does. If, if people think it does. Yeah, quite. Um, and, and so you can imagine a future in which if, okay, so d d taking a step back, the a criticism people have of NFTs when they first hear about it is, can't you just like right click the JPEG and save it to your computer? Now, now I have a copy of the Mona Lisa, just like you have a copy of the Mona Lisa, just like LeonardoDaVinci.com has a copy of the Mona Lisa. It's all the same JPEG. And so why does it matter? Like, 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 why, do, like, that's a, pr a problem with it being on the internet, which is that it's very easy to copy. Now, where the blockchain comes into this, from my understanding, again, being a non-expert, doing some caveating, where the, <coughs> where the blockchain comes into this is that what if you could actually certify that a, a digital copy of the Mona Lisa is in fact the original that Leonardo, that Leonardo da Vinci painted on Photoshop? And what if anyone in the world could see the little verified check mark next to my JPEG of the Mona Lisa and would therefore know that, oh my God, Ali Abdal is the one who owns Leonardo da Vinci's original Photoshop copy of the Mona Lisa, incredible. And if you were to try and screenshot my copy, that then it would be very, like it would be clear as day for anyone to see that you've just screenshotted mm. my copy. You yeah, don't yeah. actually own the original. Mm. So that's what why NFTs are powerful because they're a way of introducing the concept of property ownership and authenticity to digital goods. Mm. So imagine, you know, Ed Sheeran's just come out with his latest album, Equals, absolute banger. Some, some fantastic songs on there. What it like, I, I, I don't know if he's done this, I suspect probably not because I haven't heard about it. Um, Ed Sheeran could release his album as an NFT and someone around the world could buy the original digital copy of his album. Mm. Does this have any, any, any intrinsic value? Well, not really, because on one hand, anyone can listen to the album on Spotify, anyone can stream the MP3, anyone can just like pirate it and they have the MP3. But in but because we are ultimately status-seeking beings, there will be someone in the world who will feel good about the fact that they own the official copy of Ed Sheeran's album. Just like if Ed Sheeran released like one vinyl copy of the album, then the person who owned the first edition would that 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 would be worth more than subsequent copies of it. Just like first editions of Harry Potter books are worth more than reprints. Just like first editions of Pokemon cards are worth more than reprints. Essentially, NFTs let you create a digital version of a first edition. Mm. And so if I'm a big Ed Sheeran fan, I can be like, oh my God, I would happily pay $1,000 to own the original, the first edition of his album as a, as a digital asset, which in the future, other people can, and, the, and then other Ed Sheeran fans will give me status for owning that, that symbol. Mm. Ed Sheeran's a freaking huge deal. If he released his album as an NFT, someone else, some, some other fan from, I don't know, Libya might be like, oh my God, I'm, I'm going to pay $10,000 to own that. Some other fan from the US might be, you know what, I'm going to bid $100,000 for that. And you can imagine Ed Sheeran's original first edition album. Ultimately, it's just a, a, um, an MP3 file of like a bunch of songs. But you can imagine that it has sufficient va social value mm. by virtue of the fact that it's Ed Sheeran's first edition album, such that someone around the world would probably pay like $20 million mm. to be able to own that NFT. And then what they're hoping is that A, it gives them a, a, a badge of status that, hey, check me out. I am the owner of the original Ed Sheeran. Mm. But it also means further down the line, as Ed Sheeran becomes bigger and more famous, potentially, that that original first edition digital asset becomes worth more money because now Ed Sheeran is more famous. Right. And so imagine if you had the very first copy of J.K. Rowling's for the Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. That would be worth a large amount of money right now because she got so big. Mm. And that's interesting because let's say you were the first 100 people to read Harry Potter 
and you thought, oh my God, I think there's something here. I want to buy a first edition and I want to keep it in mint condition and I want to hold on to it. And I want to have a certificate of authenticity on it mm. from Bloomsbury or from Scholastic or from J.K. Rowling himself, a signed thingy saying that this is this is the actual first edition. And then you hold on to it for 20 years and now you sell it for like 10 million quid because it's suddenly more more popular. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's, it seems like NFTs are essentially, you know, it, it, it doesn't solve the problem that like, people need to decide that something is meaningful. You know, people still need to just, you know, in the same way that like, if I if I paint a painting and try and get it up in the Tate, the Tate Modern or something, you know, pe people will need to decide that this thing is meaningful. Yeah. And, you know, if I, if I make a cool picture on the internet um, and try and sell it for money, people will need to decide that the thing is meaningful. An easy way of that is by someone who's famous in real life to do something and then it's automatically meaningful. Like if Banksy decides to produce digital art, it's going to automatically be meaningful because he's Banksy or she, or maybe it's a he, I think it's been revealed or something. You know, if uh, if JK Rowling produces some digital Harry Potter thing of which she's only ever going to do like, you know, three three versions of in the world, then it's automatically meaningful because it's JK Rowling. And it, seem, it seems like having, it's, it seems like the where, where, the, where the blockchain aspect of this comes in is that it's it's just like a formal way of saying, hey, you own this specific thing. Whereas if, you know, if JK Rowling were to produce uh, a cool Harry Potter image, you know, she and, and she's like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm only making one of these Harry Potter images um, and I'm going to send it to you in an email attachment if you pay me a million, million dollars, <laughs> you know. Um, then that that image could very much it could very quickly turn into multiple images and you won't know who had who had the original one and so it's, it seems like the, the the blockchain is basically sort of for formalizing the ownership of digital assets and so um you know digital assets that people consider meaningful uh you can now see who owns them and uh because it's kind of they're all in the same blockchain so all of these nfts uh, are on the ethereum blockchain um, and so you can kind of trade them, you can send them to each other and stuff like that. Um, and everyone knows, okay, this person owned it first, then this person owned it. And so you know that, okay, there's still just one of these things. It's just been passed around. Um, and yeah, you can kind of like, yeah, monetize meaning digitally, I guess. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And the, and the fact that, that it's on the blockchain is interesting because we've sort of established, like, if you believe in Ethereum, if you trust the, um, the kind of cryptography behind it. Uh, and trust that kind of these millions of computers all around the world are maintaining the network. It means that your certificate of authenticity, effectively for your NFT, um, is verified by millions of computers all around the world. Mm. It's not that you're relying on, I don't know, Christie's or the Louvre or the Tate Modern to have a, cu a curator and a bunch of art historians that are producing a certificate for you. You've literally got a sort of a computer-based program that anyone can verify the authenticity of which is being verified by millions of computers all around the world to say that, oh, actually, it is, in fact, Ali Abdal that owns the original first edition of Ed Sheeran's new album. Now, why why, why could this be interesting? Um, I think it's interesting just on the surface because it's moving the concept of ownership to real life, just like how Bitcoin moved the concept of money to real life, sorry, just how Bitcoin moved the concept of real life money onto the internet. Um, the idea of NFTs is now moving the concept of ownership of goods onto the internet, which means, you know, you can imagine in, in the future, if like a really fancy government, like the Estonian government decides to do away with their land registry and decides to kind of do away with the archaic old systems that track who owns what property uh, in real life. And that were to go on the internet onto a blockchain. Now, kind of, if I wanted to buy a house, 
it's a lot less faff because it's all it's all it's all based on like internet stuff it's all in the cloud it's all digital rather than it being a case of like updating physical documents like it often is in the uk with lawyers and all that kind of stuff it's also interesting because like it's not just a case of me wanting to, to own ed sheeran's album as a status symbol you can then start unlocking interesting use cases like let's say i want to release 100 tickets of the part-time youtuber academy and if you own a ticket to the part-time youtuber academy if you have one of these golden tickets you're allowed to come to our in-person events uh, or you're allowed to come to our, our our monthly Zoom calls. But only if you own one of these 100 tickets can you come to our monthly Zoom calls. Now, if you own one of these tickets, someone else can't just copy and paste that because there is a way of verifying the authenticity of it. Whereas if you gave them a password, if you gave them an, a QR code, you know, th they could just screenshot that and someone else can can enter, enter my event, which I'm trying to gate. Um, but now my golden tickets that I've given to you become worth something because 10 years from now, when Alibzal becomes more famous, these events become more like, I don't know, uh, more ex exclusive. Now you can sell your golden ticket. Once you've decided you're not you're not you're not Ali Abdel fan anymore, you could sell it to someone for maybe ten times as much because that in the 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 fact that they can verify who owns the who owns the ticket means that that person will then get the access rights into the community, into the space, into the events, into whatever. Um, what some people are doing is that some like if you own an NFT, then you're allowed to join a special Discord community, and only if you own the NFT are you allowed to join the Discord. But then by virtue of being in that Discord, you have early access to subsequent NFTs that the artist like Banksy or someone might drop. So I think we're still just kind of barely scratching the surface of what's, what's possible. But certainly as I've been listening to a bunch of these podcasts and re reading a bunch of blog posts and, and tweet threads about this stuff, I feel like, damn, this is actually kind of interesting. And a few weeks ago, I thought, oh, it's just like, it's just like a JPEG. Why are people paying millions of dollars for a JPEG? But if you apply the concept that well, stuff is valuable because we as society believe it's valuable. And B, you apply the concept of being able to verify the digital ownership of something to an individual, then you unlock a lot of interesting use cases further down the line. Here's the thing, though. I think that I think the I th here's what I think a lot of people are feeling. I think you mentioned that you're kind of feeling a bit of FOMO about the whole crypto thing. Mm. I think a, a bunch of people are feeling a lot of FOMO because it seems like it seems like lots of people are getting rich, genuinely getting rich overnight because of like NFTs, you know, you like create some hype for this thing, you create this NFT and you kind of, uh, you know, tell people, oh man, this thing's going to be worth lowers, you should get it now and then the price is going to go up, etc. Mm. And it's, it seems like there's a lot of that. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of uh, grifting going on in the NFT space. And I think that kind of gives it a bit of a bad, uh, a bad reputation. Um, because yeah, I mean, pe people are getting extremely rich essentially overnight because of these things. And lots of people are trying to do that now. Um, and so th th there's a lot of that. And so I think a lot of people are kind of feeling a bit of FOMO of like, oh shit, like, should I, should I be getting into this? And so I, I think there's a lot of that going on, which, which kind of makes some people look down on NFTs. I, I, I think, and, you know, NFTs originated a while ago, like Crypto Kitties were, I think the first sort of real NFT. And that was in 2017, 2018. <clears throat> and they recently made a big resurgence. Yeah, I think there's a there's a Dunning-Kruger kind of effect of Twitter where if you read it, if you read Twitter for say one hour a day, <laughs> then you probably think NFTs are a scam, a Ponzi scheme, a get rich quick scheme. <laughs> but if you read Twitter for three hours a day, <laughs> you understand that there is, you know, there's that element of it going on. But you also appreciate that, okay, after after all this kind of Ponzi scheme style hype and you know people getting rich and stuff like that, there there will probably emerge some genuine interesting thing here. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a I consider myself in the latter category, obviously. Um and yeah, so I, I haven't really been following the like, oh man, like everyone's doing NFTs. 
I remember we we chatted about it a few months ago. I think I made some like meme or something. And mm. back then people were thinking, oh man, you can like digitize memes as NFTs and stuff like this, or like tweets and YouTube videos. I think that was kind of uh, the first the first wave of NFT craze uh, all those months ago. Um, yeah, I, I never really got into it. I think my my view was always like, ah, yeah, it looks like something's going on there. Realistically, do I want to spend the time? Do I want to spend the time to like look into this thing and understand this thing? Um, maybe, probably not. I have other things I'm doing these days. And then it's like, oh, but you know, you can make some money. And then ultimately, I was, I was, yeah. My, my view is kind of like, look, there's always going to be people get getting rich. Like, I ultimately, I don't really care. I'm going to keep buying Bitcoin and Ethereum because I think that's still going to go up even with all this other stuff going on. Um, and yeah, just like kind of taking a more of a long-term view of like, I'm sure I'm missing out on lots of money <laughs> by not bothering to look into this NFT stuff, uh, not bothering to look into every new blockchain that starts, every new, like every new coin, you know, I'm sure I'm missing out on lots of potential money. Ultimately, I don't really care. Um, I'm just going to hold some Bitcoin and Ethereum and keep doubling down there and the price will go up. And I think it's, it's a good sort of, uh, a good investment and a good bet on the space. That's that's kind of my view. Yeah, I think very reasonable. That's kind of my view as well. Uh, the only thing that differs from mine to yours is, you know, given that I do stuff on YouTube and I want to start, doc I want to document the things that I'm learning about. I want to try and capture my newbiness status as like not knowing anything about the space as I become more versed in it just because it's interesting. I want to be able to turn that into YouTube videos to help, I don't know, document that process for other people to learn about the thing. Mm. Um, and there's an element of FOMO in that as well because there's a bunch of YouTube channels blowing up because there, there's so much demand for people understanding crypto, NFTs, Web3, Metaverse type stuff. Mm. That I f And I feel like given that I ultimately want to be a teacher on, on the internet, if I can kind of synthesize all this stuff and turn it into a bunch of videos that are explaining it from first principles once I understand it better, then there is potentially some value to be captured there for my kind of media business thing. Um, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's probably what got me into it. Nice. Um, so I think if, if someone's listening to this episode, to be honest, I think our technical explanations are really crap. I think that was probably, uh, we probably spent a bit too much time, like trying to explain like the concepts behind things. Oh yeah. I'd recommend listening, you know, we'll link to some of those other podcasts about the stuff if you, if you, uh, if you're interested, but yeah, in short, my position is crypto is here to stay unclear exactly what people will be using it for 10 years from now, but I'm sure it'll be something. Um, and so I think it's worth having some awareness about it and, you know, if you are thinking about where you want to park your money, where you want to invest your savings, et cetera, et cetera, I think it is a no-brainer to put some of them into crypto. Yeah, it's broadly my position as well. I think that brings us to the end of the podcast. Yep. Um, maybe we can do an insight of the week. Oh, yeah. I'll open up Twitter.com. I deleted the Twitter and Instagram apps last week. So now I'm on the Twitter mobile you website. Twitter.com. Yeah, on Twitter.com. Yeah, something that I was thinking about last week is that, um, I don't know if you've ever had to make a friend across a, a language barrier, like if you're in a foreign country or something and you, know, you don't speak the, the language very well. I think there's a real beauty to it. Actually, I'll open up my tweet again to, to see the points that I made about it. Yeah, I think um, I think when it, when it takes work just to have basic communication with someone else, like you don't, you don't end up, you know, when you, meet, when you meet someone normally, you know, as you get to know them a bit, you know, over, over like a one hour conversation, if you're both, for example, native English speakers, you can figure out so much about them and you can like make so many inferences about them based on how they talk, what they're talking about, subtle body language things. Like there, there's so much there that, we're, you know, we're, within a short period of time, you can make a bunch of inferences about someone 
and you know some some of the you might find certain things distasteful about them but i, I think there's there's a beauty to having like a really uh, a serious language barrier or maybe i'll just write, read, read, read out my tweet okay here it is it's a thread all right so w when basic communication takes work you don't get to the things that you might find distasteful about the other and if you do your worlds are so different that you couldn't pass judgment and if you could you think what would be the point and so you know my new country like you know some completely different background completely different world like even if you find that you know they have a different take on something you you will almost certainly just conclude that eh, you know different world you know whatever I, I go on to say you know you're deaf to the subtleties to their subtleties of speech the telling twang to their accent the revealing choices of words why do they say this and not that are they trying to signal something um I got to say that uh, the only signal is that they are trying and, and you are too. You're trying more than you try in most conversations, in fact. Trying to listen, trying to understand, trying to respond, sincerely trying to connect. Your know, sentences are hard, you're doing lots of hand motions. Um, you know, your face is also, you're doing a lot of facial expressions to try and communicate. Um, and after all of that effort, you're, you get your reward, which is that you find out that they live nearby and that the orange juice is good here. And you tell them that, oh, my partner's over there and I'll try the orange juice. Um, so like all this work to have like a really basic conversation, but it, it's really nice and it feels really meaningful because it doesn't have like all the other crap that, that goes through our heads when we're interacting in like a native language with someone else who speaks that native language. Mm. I don't think I've felt that feeling of meaningful when communicating with people for whom communication is difficult because of a language barrier. Really? Um, yeah. It just, it's, it's so rewarding even get to getting to that basic point of like having like a really, you know trivial conversation here's the thing i think i think the, the reason it's cool is because the you know the information that you transfer is is very little it's very trivial mm. but like the vibes the vibes yeah the vibes are yeah. the vibes are the same generally both parties have a smile on the face but there's a bit of laughter a bit of laughter yeah like language, the, language, the vibes are sort of uh unadulterated mm. the information is like whatever you know who, who cares about the, the transfer of information the information is really just a fodder for transferring vibes and I think the vibes are just really good because you're both like making such a huge effort to communicate and you don't get a chance to have all the other psychic chatter in your head about like the other person, about yourself, about the situation, etc. Um, is this sort of like, I, I, I certainly don't feel this when I'm speaking to someone who has a bad internet connection. It, no, that's not it. That's not it. I think in real life, it has to be kind of real life. It has life. to be real life. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. Interesting take. Yeah. Think about it. All right. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next week. See you later. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on the Apple Podcasts website. If you're not using an iPhone, there's a link in the show notes. If you've got any thoughts on this episode or any ideas for new podcast topics, we'd love to get an audio message from you with your conundrum, question, or just anything that we could discuss. Yeah. If you're up for having your voice played on the podcast and your question being the springboard for our discussion, email us an audio file mp3 or voice note to hi at notoverthinking.com. If you've got thoughts, but you'd rather not have your voice played publicly that's fine as well tweet or dm us at n overthinking on twitter please thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time